could summarize Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 with the words total commitment. Well, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, what it tells us about the Christian life is that the Christian life is not something that you add on. It's not just one aspect of your life. It's not like piano lessons where you've got all these things in your life and then you decide, well, I'm going to also learn how to play the piano, so I'm going to add this thing on to my life. That's how some people treat Christianity in the church. So I've got all these things going on in my life, and I'd also like to put God in there somewhere. So on Sunday morning, I'll mark out a couple hours, and I'll go to church, and, and that'll be my, my religious time, my God time. And that's not what Christianity is at all. Christianity is a life of service. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You see it there in your Bibles. Let's read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is the call to total commitment. Your life is now presented to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, again, focus on that phrase, spiritual worship. Here I've got it summarized as the liturgy of your life. Liturgy is one of those church words that we use to describe what happens in a Sunday morning in a building like this and people to gather together for their, their Sunday morning worship. But the liturgy that the scripture is talking about here is not this hour and a half in the church building. The liturgy that the Bible is talking about, it actually uses the Greek word from which we get our word liturgy, this liturgos that we have and we are offering to God is your whole life. Everything that you do from week to week, day to day, year to year, everything that you have, everything that you are, you are presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The liturgy of your life. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, it teaches us about our identity, our individual identity, our corporate identity, and what is our identity? Who am I? Who are we? We are a holy priesthood. You must think of yourself as a priest. This is important. The priesthood of the believer is one of the, the foundational principles of the Reformation and it's so easily lost by people who just go to church on Sunday morning and are Christians. Now, being a Christian is not about going to church on a Sunday morning. It is about being a priest of God every day of your life. We are this holy priesthood that is offering up these spiritual sacrifices to God. And what does it look like to be a holy priest offering up spiritual sacrifices to God? That's what Paul is going to make clear as we continue through Romans 12 through 16. Our individual identity, our corporate identity as priests of God. And then it says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When he says by testing, he means you're going to prove it. You're going to put it into practice and to show its quality, show its worth. One of the things that was tested, and the biblical metaphor is often used, is of gold. Gold is tested in the fiery furnace in order to prove its value, to prove what it's made of. And so, when we test the will of God, we're going to be proving that it's pure gold. We're going to be testing and showing what it's made of. And what is the will of God made of? Well, everything that is good, everything that is acceptable, everything that is perfect. The word good, think about that for a moment with me as we're reviewing and getting ready for the next section. What is good is that which 
preserves or supports as opposed to what destroys or corrupts. What preserves and supports health, well-being, peace, prosperity, joy. That is what is good. It's what preserves those things. And what is evil is what destroys those things. Mental, spiritual health, communities, families. Evil destroys. Good is what preserves and supports and builds. And then you think about that word perfect there at the end. It's good and acceptable and perfect. And I love that this word teleos, meaning mature, whole, is here to describe the will of God. Because in contrast to the half-baked ideas of mankind on how to live your life, which has an appearance of wisdom and can draw you in and make you think, oh, this is really good. That's not the way the will of God is. The will of man, the counsel of man, it, it looks good, but then it has unintended consequences. You ever heard about the law of unintended consequences? What could possibly go wrong, right? And so mankind is not very good at thinking through what could possibly go wrong, and his good intentions are always producing bad effects. And so God's will is different. God knows all things. He knows all things possible. He knows all things actual. He knows what the outcome a thousand years from now is going to be based upon your decision in this, in this day. And God can see all that, and when God tells you this is what is good and this is what is not good, then you're not relying on your own thinking, your own understanding, but you're trusting in the one who knows everything, and then it has sometimes short-term difficulty, but long-term gain. Whereas the will of man will have short-term gain and long-term disaster. So the will of God is what we are proving in our life. This is what it means to be a holy priest. That we are in this world offering up our lives as a spiritual sacrifice and demonstrating to the world the quality of God's will. When you live your life according to God's instructions, when you live your life according to God's testimonies, when you base your beliefs on the word of God, what does it produce? Does it produce good things? And that's what we are to be, a light shining in a dark world, showing this is what it looks like to really live life in Jesus Christ. All right, so with that overview, with that review in mind, we're ready to start to dig into some of the nitty-gritty details of the Christian life. And where do you think Paul would start when he wants to say, well, what does your individual and corporate identity as a holy priesthood, what does it look like in practical daily terms, where does Paul choose to begin that discussion? Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. All right? Romans 12, 3 through 8, the body of Christ. Verse 3, you have received a gift. Verses 4 and 5, use it in the body of Christ. Let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. And this morning, we're just going to get through these three verses, and we'll say the actual list of spiritual gifts for next week. Follow along Romans 12, verses 3 through 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members of the body do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So, when you think about your identity, the first thing that Paul wants to 
illustrate about your priesthood in action is, is how you interact in the temple of God. You are part of a holy people. And your relationship, how you treat the bride of Christ, is foundational. It is essential to Christian living. That if a man says he loves God, but he despises the church, he denigrates the church, he tears down the work of God in the church, he is a liar or is self-deceived. God loves the church. This is the temple of God. We are the dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit. And so, how you cherish the church, how you relate to the church, how you serve the church, is probably the, the prime measure, it's the first measure that Paul gives here, of whether or not you are living a life that is good, a life that is acceptable to God, a life that is mature and complete. The world doesn't love the church. The world attacks the church, tries to tear down the church, tries to discourage the church. And if you see a Christian who goes along with the world in attacking and tearing down and hindering the work of the church, well, that's a Christian who's playing for the wrong team. God is about building up the church, and so this is where Paul starts when he starts to talk about your Christian life, your holy priesthood, how you relate to the church of God. Paul begins with a warning, an exhortation against pride and hubris. He says there in verse 3 that by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We'll get to the warning here in a minute, but let's look at how Paul introduces it. He says, by the grace given to me. And what is that? What is the grace that has been given to Paul? Well, if you read through Paul's letters, you'll find out that he often refers to his apostleship as a grace that has been given to him. And so here, he's saying, as an apostle, as one who has been given the grace of apostleship, I am speaking to every one of you. Now when he says every one among you, he's being very specific. Because this particular warning against thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, is something that is very easy for us to see in other people, but it's very hard for us to see in ourselves. My wife can testify. It's very easy for me to see when other people are thinking too highly of themselves, but it's very hard for me to see when I am thinking too highly of myself. And so that's why Paul singles you out in this exhortation. He says, I'm speaking to everyone among you. Don't be thinking about him. Don't be thinking about her. Be thinking about yourself and your tendency to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think of yourself. Now, this sounds strange to some people in our culture because our culture has been obsessed with the problem of low self-esteem and has hardly paid any attention to the problem of high self-esteem. Inordinately high self-esteem is apparently, to the Apostle Paul, more of a concern and more of a worry than inordinately low self-esteem. Self-esteem is what we're talking about here in verse 3, how you're supposed to think about yourself. He says, don't think of yourself more highly, but think with sober judgment. Now look at that phrase. You see the word think several times. Not to think, ought to think, think with sober judgment. And uh, that word judgment it actually could also be translated thinking. Because each time here, he's, he's using the same word 
for thinking. And it's called paranomasia, where you're using the same word over and over again as kind of a wordplay. And so you could say, you could translate this, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober thinking. That's what Paul is saying to us here. Now, how do we have sober thinking when it comes to how we're supposed to think about ourselves? Well, the Word of God helps us here. Paul says that in order to have sober thinking about ourselves, we need to recognize that we have been given a measure of faith. Notice what Paul says. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this phrase, the measure of faith, is somewhat obscure. We're not exactly sure what Paul means when he says a measure of faith. And there's, there's two major possibilities here. One possibility, which is not my favorite, but I think it's a good possibility, is that the measure of faith is that God has given us this body of doctrine, this body of truth, the gospel message, the truth in Jesus Christ, and we measure ourselves according to that measure. So the measure of faith is the Christian faith. And when you measure yourself according to the Christian faith, well, then you recognize, well, I'm a sinner. And you recognize that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so that helps me not to think too highly of myself and start to think that I'm really something because I've got all this wisdom and I've got this life and I've got this strength that comes from God. And you remember that all of this is a gift of grace. And I think that's an important lesson, whether that's what Paul has in mind or not. But I think more accurately in the context here, what Paul is probably referring to as the measure of faith is your spiritual gift. I think Paul is saying, how are you supposed to think of yourself is that you're supposed to think of yourself as someone who has also been given a grace gift. Remember Paul said, according to the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. And so Paul doesn't come in full of himself, saying, look, here I am. I'm a big guy in the church. I planted all these churches. I traveled. I suffered for Christ. So you guys should listen to me. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I'm speaking to you by the grace that has been given to me. Did Paul deserve to be an apostle? No, he was the least worthy of being an apostle. He was the one who persecuted the church. He was the one who hated the church. He was the one who hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not on the list of potential apostles when the church in Jerusalem is saying, you know, we could use another apostle. Who do you think we should choose? Uh, what about that Saul of Tarsus guy? No, he doesn't even get any consideration. But God chose him because God wanted to show the abundance of his mercy. God chose the chief of sinners, so to speak, and, and Paul's not just being humble there, that if you're going to identify today who is the, the chief of sinners in America, you might look for, well, who hates Christianity the most, and who's attacking the church the most? You know, sometimes people would have a different standard, they'd be like, well, you know, that child molester, that's the chief among sinners. But actually, a sin against a child is, is as horrible as that is. Sinning against the bride of Christ, and Tearing down the work of God in the holy temple, that's worse. That's worse than being a child molester. And so the Apostle Paul, when he says he was the chief among sinners, he's not just speaking hyperbolically, but if the church in Jerusalem was going to say, who's the one who's most opposed to God's work in the world today, they probably would have figured Saul of Tarsus. And God chose that man to be the apostle to the Gentiles because of grace. Because of grace. So either interpretation you have here, the focus is on grace. And it's the grace of God that allows us to stay humble. And when you recognize that you have been given a gift, that's really the, the, the main idea I want you to walk away from verse 3 is, 
is that Paul was given the gift of apostleship. And as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and as you see here in the following verses in Romans chapter 12, each one of you has received a measure of faith. And I think a measure of faith is another way of referring to what is most commonly referred to as a spiritual gift. Notice here that when Paul talks about the measure of faith, he says it's that God has assigned. And I think that verb assigned is, is key to understanding the measure of faith because Paul is pointing out here that it's God who chooses what your role in the Holy Temple is. It's God who incorporated you into the body of Christ. Incorporated actually means literally to be put into a body. Corporates body and being put in. He incorporated you into the body of Christ. He caused you to be born again. He united you to this holy temple, this structure, this dwelling of the Holy Spirit that he's building. And so he assigned to you a measure of faith, a spiritual gift, a ministry, a work, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit to be able to benefit the body of Christ. When I was out in California, I was a part of a, a really big church, a Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur preaches. And on a Sunday morning, you have thousands of people gathering there. And Jamie and I went through the membership class while we were there. And one of the things they pointed out in the membership class was that the strength of this church, you might think, is, is John MacArthur in the pulpit. And they said, well, you'd, you'd be wrong. The strength of this church is in the body. The thousands of people who show up every Sunday and who minister throughout the week, being this holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. Because the motto of the church was, every member is a minister. You're not too young to be a minister. You're not too old to be a minister. And that's why I don't really like it when pastors are called ministers. Because it takes the focus off of what the Bible teaches. Is that you are all ministers. And you are to minister in the way that God has assigned. The measure of faith that God has given to you. The way that the Holy Spirit manifests himself in you is different from the way he manifests himself than anyone else in this church. Now you can put people into categories. But even within categories, there's going to be a uniqueness to you and your faith. To how you relate to God. To how your mind works. To how the Holy Spirit empowers you to be able to be a blessing to others and building up the church in their faith. We'll get to this here a little bit later, exactly how this works, as we're going to be examining the doctrine of the church. Here, Romans 12, 3-8 is an introduction into ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the theological word for the doctrine of the church. What does the Bible teach the church is? This is an important doctrine that is often overlooked. You know, sometimes the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of who Christ is and what Christ has done, what it means to believe in Christ and what it means to be born again, those take such a prominent place that people forget there's other important doctrines in the Bible too. And the doctrine of what is the church and what is the church supposed to do and how is the church supposed to do it is pretty important. What are we doing here? Who are we? How do we accomplish goals? What are our goals? So, when I first came here as your pastor in 2008, that was what I wanted to focus on. So I was reasonably sure that you all were straight with your gospel, that you knew what it meant to be a sinner, you knew what it meant to be born again, you knew what faith in Christ meant, and you knew what the work of Christ accomplished on the cross. So I didn't want to start telling you what I, I thought we already had a very clear understanding of. But instead, I wanted to make sure that we were on the same page in the area of ecclesiology. Because you were calling me to be your pastor. Well, what is a pastor? What's a pastor supposed to do? 
What are you supposed to be doing? What are our goals here? What are we trying to accomplish? And so I wanted to get digging into the Word of God to find out the answers to those questions and lay them out before us so that, that we could start to formulate our ministry together. And now that's been, you know, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And so it's time for us to, to focus once again on the doctrine of ecclesiology. Now, when I came here in 2008, the first book I preached verse by verse, chapter by chapter, was the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians is the best book to develop your doctrine of the church. And after preaching through Ephesians, then we preached Revelation 1 through 3, which is also a very important part of scripture for understanding what is the church? What's a good church look like? What's bad in a church? How does Jesus Christ evaluate a church to see whether it's healthy or unhealthy? And then we also looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. We covered all those key ecclesiastical books in my first few years here. The only one we haven't gotten to yet is 1 Timothy. That's on my list of books to preach again very soon. But you get a little bit of it here in Romans chapter 12. The doctrine of the church in Romans 12 verses 3 through 8. And he continues with this important theme in the following chapters as well. Now, the measure of faith is your spiritual gift. And we need to be humble and recognize that the spiritual gift, the ministry that we have received, it's been graced to us. I did not choose to be a pastor teacher. The Holy Spirit chose me to be a pastor teacher. I didn't become a pastor by going to seminary. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit assigns spiritual gifts. He assigns spiritual roles. Now, I went to seminary to learn from other pastors teachers how to develop the gift that God had given me. But if you send a man whose gift is service to seminary to learn how to be a pastor teacher, well, that's like sending an offensive lineman to the quarterback school. Not going to work out very well for the team. When the offensive lineman starts to play quarterback, the team's going to lose. And so we all have to play the role that God has designed for us. I'm getting ahead of myself in the sermon here, so let's go ahead and move on to point number two. The using of your spiritual gift, utilizing that gift in the body of Christ. Look again at verses 4 and 5 here in Romans chapter 12. He says, As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. A beautiful metaphor that Paul brings in here in Romans chapter 12, the body of Christ. You are a part of something important. You are a part of something special. You are a part of something holy. The body of Christ. That's what we are. Having that sense of identity is so important. You know, I told you our society is obsessed with identity. Identity this, identity that. You go into the stores and you see Self Magazine and all this type of thing. You go to the psychologist and he wants to tell you who you are, wants to find out who you are. We're obsessed with identity. And it's not wrong to be interested in identity. It's very important. But you've got to start with God. You've got to start with Christ. You were created by God. You were created to worship and know God. You fell into sin. You were born a sinner. But God provides redemption through Jesus Christ. And when you become a new creature in Christ, what does that mean? You have a new identity. Actually, you have rediscovered the original identity, so to speak, that God gave to Adam in the garden. And now you are even better because you are in Christ. And that new identity in Christ, it gives us a purpose. It gives us a drive. And it unites us. 
Your relationship with God is not just a personal thing. It is a corporate thing. Now, you can err on either side of this. There are Christians who really just focus on their personal relationship with God and have little concern for the church of God. And there are other Christians who don't have any personal time with God, but they spend a lot of time with church activities and in the church. And both of those are a mistake. You've got to have a proper balance of having personal alone time with God, developing that that one-on-one fellowship with the Father through His Son in the Holy Spirit. But then you've got to go from the strength of that time with God into the community of the church. You know, sometimes people will say, well, the church is just a social club. And so for the people who don't have that personal relationship with God, and they're just coming and they like to be around people and they want to be with people, they don't have the strength that they need from that personal relationship with God to make it anything more than just a social club. We don't want to be a social club, but we also don't want to be just a bunch of holy hermits that are keeping to ourselves. There's this individualism and community that are brought together in our identity in Christ. And here, Paul focuses on the community, that we are individual members of one body. Now, the fullest development that Paul gives of this metaphor of us being the body of Christ and members of his body is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that's why we had our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 12. Some people ask the question, why did Paul start in Romans chapter 12 talking about the specifics of the Christian life with spiritual gifts and with the body of Christ? Well, we don't know for sure, but one possibility is it seems from our knowledge of history that Paul was writing to the church at Rome from Corinth. And as Paul was in Corinth, well, he would have been thinking about the things that were happening in Corinth. And Corinth was one of those churches we know from the letter that Paul wrote that had a lot of questions and a lot of difficulties, a lot of issues that arose in this area of spiritual gifts. And so Paul's saying, well, if I'm going to write to the church at Rome, I don't necessarily know everything that's going on in that church, but I know that this spiritual gifts thing is a real problem here in Corinth, so I'm going to write a few words on that to the church in Rome. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in the sermon here and take a closer look at the metaphor, and here Paul gives it much more detail and description, of the church as the body of Christ. One body with many members. That's the title for the section in the ESV translation of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. And I want to start reading here in 1 Corinthians in verses 4 through 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Paul writes this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Here's a a great Trinitarian passage. I like what one commentator said about this. The apostle clearly functions with the Trinitarian concept of God. You know, there's not a, a chapter on the Trinity in the Bible, per se, but you just find it as the groundwork the substance upon which all of the other chapters in the Bible are written, especially in the New Testament when you have a fuller understanding of the second person of the Trinity. But even in the Old Testament, there's just this groundwork of the Trinity that is underneath all that's being written. And that's what you have here in verses 4 through 6 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He starts with the Spirit, and then he talks about the Lord, Jesus Christ in this context, and then he talks about God, who would be referring to the Father. 
So the Spirit, the Lord, and God the Father are here in parallel places, parallel construction, showing that they are three persons in one God. It's clearly Trinitarian, even though he doesn't come out and say, here, I want to unfold for you the doctrine of the Trinity. So he starts with the Spirit. Why does he start with the Spirit? Normally in a Trinitarian formulation, you start with the Father, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But here he reverses it. He goes, Spirit, Son, Father. Why? Well, because of what we read in the following verses. He's going to focus on the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who is at work in the church with the spiritual gifts. Notice the emphasis on the Spirit following verse 6. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Notice the different terms that are used here to describe what we just generally call spiritual gifts. He starts off calling them gifts in verse 4, but then he talks about service in verse 5. So you can talk about it as a grace gift, or you can talk about it as a service, a service to one another. And then he talks about activities in verse 6. So it's what you're doing in the holy temple. It's your priestly service, your activities. It's a variety of these different types of spiritual gifts, spiritual service, spiritual activity. And it is the Trinity that is involved with all of the variety. There's a variety, but there's just one God who is empowering it all. So then he focuses on the manifestation of the Spirit in verse 7. That's another way of describing spiritual gift. It's a ministry. It's an activity. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. See, when you come to church, you are actually manifesting the Spirit of God in unique ways. The way that Becky manifests the Spirit of God among us is different from the way that Dan manifests the Spirit of God among us. And when everybody comes and manifests the Spirit of God through their unique personality, through their unique gifts and powers and abilities, then God is magnified in a multifaceted and beautiful way. There's a diversity, but there's also a wonderful unity. And that's what the world has been searching for. The world has been trying to find out how do we take all the diversity in the world and bring it together in a way that is not warring with one another, but is peaceful. How do we get this unity out of all these diverse people with all their different backgrounds and all their different beliefs? Well, the unity is found in Jesus Christ. And he allows us to still be our, our unique individual selves, but then he ties us together at the most important foundational level, our beliefs. This uh, work of God in bringing unity through diversity, is a wonderful thing. We don't want to get rid of the diversity, and we don't want to get rid of the unity. But when we are walking in the Holy Spirit, then you can see what it looks like for a redeemed humanity to be so different from one another, and yet so united. The church is an amazing thing. It's the joy of the world. It's the hope that is in the world. It's, a, it's the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And so be diligent to maintain that unity that God has created among us and be diligent to be the unique individual that God has made you to be with the activity, the service, the spiritual gift, the manifestation of the Spirit that he has imparted to you. Now, as Paul writes here, he recognizes both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians that Whenever God measures out gifts to different people that are different from gifts he's given to someone else, 
there's going to be a tendency towards envy, jealousy, and discontentment. This is true in natural gifts, and it's also true in supernatural gifts. I was telling my kids this week that when you become a believer in Christ, you get a superpower. And, uh, you know, that, that sounds exciting. And it really is exciting. You are born with certain natural gifts. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12. We're talking about supernatural gifts. We're talking about manifestations of the Spirit of God. Okay? This is something that comes from God himself who is all-powerful. So you have your natural gifts, which are also given to you by God, but these spiritual gifts, these are functioning on a different level. So just because someone is a great speaker doesn't mean that they have the gift of teaching. God could take someone who is a great speaker uh, before Christ and give him the gift of service. And that would be a, a wonderful thing for God to do to show that it doesn't depend upon natural abilities and talents, but that God works in a different way. And so whenever God starts to distribute different gifts, different abilities, some people are going to look at their gift and say, well, I don't like it. And they're going to look at someone else's gift and say, I, that's the one I want. I wanted that gift. And this happens in, in the world all the time. And this is a lot of what people are referring to when they're talking about the problem of low self-esteem is actually what the problem is discontentment. The problem is jealousy. The problem is I don't like who God has made me to be and I wish that God had made me to be that person. Why can't I be a Super Bowl winning quarterback? That would be a pretty good life. I want that gift. I want that talent. I don't want to be the guy who was born to clean toilets. That's not phenomenal. Nobody takes notice of that, and they don't even pay much for it. And so we're always looking at other people and measuring ourselves by them and say, well, God, why didn't you make me like that? And so it's the same way in the church. God gave some pretty spectacular, phenomenal gifts, especially in the apostolic age of the church, like the gift of apostle. The apostles, they could perform miracles. The apostle Paul did some amazing things. And other Christians would look at that and be like, yeah, that's the gift I want. But, you know, whenever we're envious, the grass is always greener on the other side, it's because we're not thinking it all the way through, right? Do you really want the ministry of the Apostle Paul? Do you want to be shipwrecked? Do you want to be beaten? Do you want to be whipped? Do you want to be cast into prison? Do you want to be beheaded? You know, we just look at the positive sides of someone else's gift and we don't look at the negative side. And we just look at the negative side of our gift and we don't look at the positive and then we start to grumble and complain. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is being who God made you to be and being thankful for who God made you to be and doing the best job at what God has created you to do that you can do. That's wisdom. And when you stand before God, he's not going to judge you based upon what gift he gave you. He's not going to say, well, you got the gift of service, so you're not going to get a very high place in heaven. No, that would be foolish. Why would God judge people according to something that they had nothing to do with? God is the one who assigns the spiritual gifts, so he's not going to judge somebody and say, oh, well, you were a pastor, so you get to have this great reward in heaven. No. In fact, the Bible says the contrary. The Bible says, let not many of you become teachers, because as teachers you will incur a stricter judgment. There's going to be a harsh judgment upon teachers. And many of the people that the church looks up to as, as these spiritual giants and leaders and gives them all the applause, buys all their books, they're the ones that are going to be condemned harshly by God, for not leading the church according to the Spirit of God. And for many Christians who are unknown, who may not even be that much recognized within their own congregation, who did the job that God gave them to do with the power of God 
and the love of God, they are, are going to have a great reward. God doesn't judge as people judges. He judges according to righteous judgment, true judgment. He looks at the heart, not at the outward manifestation. And so that's what is motivating Paul to write 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's take a closer look at it again. Continue on from verse 7. Paul writing about the body of Christ, he says, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge. Now if you want to know more about these specific gifts, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, I have preached in detail on this, and you can go find that on the church website. But we're not going to get into the details of the list this morning. Instead, what I want you to focus is just the variety that is here. And it's according to the same Spirit. Notice he mentions the Spirit in verse 8, twice, through the Spirit, according to the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles and prophecy and tongues, and he goes on and on. And, but notice what the point of this list is. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. And so if you're going to complain about who God has made you to be, you're going to miss out on the reward that God has for you. And the church is going to miss out on what you were supposed to do. Because this metaphor of the body, it illustrates to us that it's essential that the body parts do what they were made to do. Some body parts are more essential, more vital than others. You cut off my finger, I'm still going to live. I cut out my heart and I'm done for. But I still really like my finger, all right? And I wouldn't take a million dollars for my finger. And that's the way we are in the body of Christ. We love one another no matter what our role is, no matter how prominent or vital or essential, all are important because we are one body. All are cherished because we need one another. I need my finger. Now, I may not need it as much as my heart, but I still need it. <clears throat> and I'm not parting with it. Let's go on and read what he says there about this. This is the big idea throughout the rest of the chapter. And he takes some time to, to really hammer this point home. He, in Romans, he's rather brief, but here he really wants to dwell on this thought. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. That Christ is the great uniter. He is the one who is able to bring together people who would be anything but united if it was in the flesh, in the world, according to the natural course of this world. The world is full of divisions. People are being divided up into all these different groups. And you're in this group because of this and that. And you're in that group and, and all these different groups and the intersections and the power and the struggle and the rivalry. And, and the world is obsessed with that. But we have the answer. In Christ, you all are baptized into one body. And so I have a union, a connection with people who speak a different language than me, who look different than I look, who have totally different experiences in their life than what I've experienced. 
Because we have this vital connection to the God who created us, the God who has redeemed us, the God who has promised us a place in his kingdom. And I feel more united to that person who is so different from me than the person who I grew up in school with, who lived on my street, who I played ball with. I don't have much in common with him because he doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't believe what I believe. He's not in his heart what I am. Christ is the great uniter, but also he is the great divider. What differentiates me? What separates me from that person who looks like I and speaks like I and watched the movies that I have watched? I've got Christ as my Lord, and he doesn't. And there's this division There's this separation. We have different goals, different ambitions, different beliefs, different desires, different loves, different hates. Even though we've had all these other same experiences, Christ is the one who has divided us. As it says in Matthew, Christ has come so that the enemies will be the members of your own household. I mean, who could you be more united with than the members of your own household? I mean, at least you should, except for sin, how, you know, sin ruins all of that. But your own family, your own tribe, the people who are most like you and you're most like them. But Christ makes the division because Christ is the important one. If you have Christ in common, then that's uniting you. If you don't have Christ in common, then Christ divides you. This is the importance of identity in a worldview that understands who God is and who Christ is and how essential they are to our identity. Now, As you continue through the chapter, you see just how much care each member of the body is supposed to show towards one another. And so just look around the room. You're all different. You all have different personalities. You all have different ways of expressing yourself. You all have different ways of thinking, different opinions, different preferences, different ways that you serve the Lord. How are you supposed to think about one another? How are you supposed to value one another? Look at what Paul says. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an ear, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You know, we, we don't need 50 mouths in the church, Right? One mouth is big enough. But we need lots of ears, and we need lots of hands, and we need lots of feet. We need lots of people that are doing what the Word of God says. We don't need everybody just saying, well, this is what God's Word says. We need a lot of people that are going to do what God's Word says. And so the gift of service, the gift of mercy, the gift of helps, the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, uh, all these gifts are vital for the functioning of the body. You don't want a distorted, ugly body of, of nothing but one body part. And God is wise. That's why he distributes the gifts the way that he does. Just as he has made the human body to be united in diversity, so he's made the body of Christ to be a unity in diversity with many different ministries. You know, for the soldier to storm the beach of Normandy, he needs artillery support. And he needs air support. And he needs a medic for the wounded. He needs supply lines in order to press into the mainland. And there's got to be a general in command and a worker back in the factories to provide ammunition and supplies. If everybody's the frontline soldier, they're all dead. There's got to be a diversity in the unity of the army where everyone is working together and valuing the role that each person plays 
for victory. So it is in the church. So it is in a football team. You know, the quarterback often sometimes gets the coveted role. I was watching an interview with a famous Hall of Fame quarterback, and he said, man, when uh, I was chosen as quarterback on my Little League team, I was devastated. I wanted to be the running back. I wanted to be the receiver. I I didn't want to be the guy throwing the ball. I wanted to be the guy that was catching the ball and throwing it down in the end zone. But God made him to be a quarterback. And he had to learn how to be the quarterback. And that's funny because most people want to be the quarterback, right? Because he's the star. He's kind of the face of the team. But some people don't want to be the face of the team. The point is, 40 quarterbacks do not a good football team make. You take 40 Hall of Fame quarterbacks and you put them up against a real football team, they're going to get slaughtered. And God doesn't compose the church that way. God is wise. He makes running backs in the church and wide receivers and he makes defensive players in the church and everyone has their role to play. And you follow the playbook, you listen to the head coach, you do what you're supposed to do, and we win. We win, right? That's what Paul's getting at here. So don't try to play a role you weren't designed for. Do the role that you were created for. God, verse 18, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Paul keeps emphasizing this. Did you choose your spiritual gift? No. God chose your spiritual gift. What if I don't like my spiritual gift? Can I you know, put in a request for a different one? I wouldn't recommend it. I'd say just be thankful for what you have. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Right? Indispensable. Not getting rid of this. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. You know, a couple weeks ago, we were having our mission, well, last week, right? We were having our mission Sunday. And I was up here and I was giving a presentation on all these different missionaries and and then David comes up and and he gives a talk on the camp and everybody clapped for David after he got done talking and and nobody clapped for me. (laughs) Right? Well, you guys know that I have such a big ego that I don't need anyone clapping for me. (laughs) And you know that David, he's such a humble guy that he needs encouragement when he comes up on the stage and you, you clap for him for giving a good presentation. So we bestow more honor on those that need that more honor bestowed on them. And we lift up and raise up ministries that are sometimes unnoticed behind the scenes that don't get everyone's attention. You don't see what they're doing on a Sunday morning. What's that person doing in church? I don't know. Sometimes we like to highlight that and lift them up and praise them as an example, just what Paul's talking about here. We have that, that care for one another, bestowing honor on the part that lacks it. That there may be no division in the body, So we want to do what we can to keep this unity of the team. You know, the team that wins the Super Bowl, the army that wins, is the one that is united, that believes in the mission, believes in their leadership, believes in the plan, and who values each part and the part that they are playing. That's the winning plan. So if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So you, Paul says, are the body of Christ. Just spend some time appreciating that. You have a group identity that is more meaningful, more important for time and for eternity than anything else that's true about your group identity. 
I'm part of this group. I'm part of this economic class. I'm a part of this race. I'm a part of this nation. I'm a part of this language group or whatever. I'm a Nebraskan, a Husker, right? That's not a very important part of your identity compared to this. You are the body of Christ. Christ is in the world today. Where is he? Right here. Here he is. He's in the world because the Spirit of God is in you. It's the Spirit of Christ. And that's real. That's not just a metaphor. He is here in the Spirit. And the Spirit is God, a person. You are the body of Christ. And individually, you are a member of it. This, of course, leads us into 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, the more excellent way. And then in chapter 14, he has to speak specifically on the subject of prophecy and speaking in tongues, which were some of the more coveted, showy gifts in the first century church. But all of this here in 1 Corinthians 12 is what we need to know that reinforces what Paul has been teaching us here in Romans 12, 3 through 5. Two things. You have received a gift. And that simple statement keeps you from high self-esteem and it keeps you from low self-esteem. That statement right there gives you a proper self-esteem. Because what's low self-esteem? It says, oh, you know, because I don't have this person's gift, because I don't have this person's talents, I'm useless. There's nothing that I can do in the church. Oh, woe is me. That's, that's the low self-esteem. But here, you have received a gift. You're not useless. No Christian is dispensable. No Christian is dispensable in the church. You functioning properly in this team is vital to our success. Every one of you. That's important. And remember that this is a gift. It's not something you chose, not something you earned, not something you deserve. So this keeps us from inordinate high self-esteem. Well, look at me, aren't I so important? Right? So that simple statement, you have received a gift, it puts you right where you need to be. Not too high, not too low, but useful. That's what we want to be. We want to be useful. And then secondly, so if you're useful, use it. Use that spiritual gift. Use the gift that God has given to you. Accomplish the ministry. Do the work. Manifest the spirit, if I can use some of Paul's other terminology to describe it. I want to end with coming back to the beginning. It's a communion confession in the Anglican church. And I don't know if they use it all the time or sometime, but I just really liked it. And this goes back to where we began. The Christian life is not something you add on to your life for a couple hours in your day. Christian life is the foundation from which everything else in your life is done. It is the very foundation of your identity so that when you're an electrician, you're a Christian electrician. When you're an accountant, you're a Christian accountant. When you're a homemaker, you're a Christian homemaker because Christ is the center of your being and you are totally committed to doing his will. And so the confession says, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. And when you fulfill your role in the church, which we'll be learning more about next week, what some of the different roles are, and you might get some help in figuring out what role you're supposed to be fulfilling in the church. When you fulfill your role, that is a big part of you offering yourself as a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice to God. It's the first thing that Paul wanted to mention when he started to detail 
living this kind of life of total commitment to God. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of being a part of the body of Christ. We thank you for creating a a new man in Christ Jesus, a renewed humanity that has been born again, saved from sin, that has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God himself, poured out into our hearts through amazing grace. Father, we thank you for creating this, and we each individually thank you for making us a part of it, an important part. Lord, I pray that you'd give each person in this church wisdom to know what work you have equipped and called them to do in order to serve the saints. And Lord, may we all be zealous to fulfill that ministry so that when we stand before you, there will not be any blame laid to us for the immaturity and the weakness of the church, but that you will say, you did your part. You helped the team. You were there and you made a difference. Lord, we thank you for this privilege of purpose. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.